I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Okay, welcome to the broadcast, folks. We are coming to you live from the Credo House, and we have a little bit of a different deal going on. You guys may remember whenever we were with uh, Mike Lacona, and we were in the middle of the Credo House uh, doing our broadcast rather than back in the studio. Uh, we have got another special guest here, and I'm saving. It's, it's secret. I'm not going to tell you who it is for just a moment. Um, got a couple other announcements to make. Tim is not here. Sam is not here. Sam is in England, I think, and Tim is in San Francisco. I mean, it's, it, everybody's inviting them to speak, and I'm sitting here at the Credo House, you know, and, uh, and inviting other people to come here. But they're out doing, doing uh, lots of ministry. I promise you guys, I, I promise we are going to get back to our regular broadcast of doing difficult passages. But here's what happened. We recorded our difficult passages, and it was the, it was, I mean, we saw so many difficult passages, it was ridiculous. And we recorded it, and it's on recording, but we lost the recording. And, and now we forgot what we solved, and we have to resolve them, so uh, uh, we'll have to re-record those next time. So I promise we will get back to our regular series. Those of you who have written, um, uh, we, we will be there soon. We're probably going to start with uh, Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus say that... Every sin will be forgiven. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven of men, except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Difficult passages. Uh, difficult passage. We're also going to cover the one on uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, I think it is, where God said, I regret that I had made man on the earth. Those, that's a preview for what's coming up. Um, we've got our, um, our uh, Converse with Scholars, uh, Coffee with Scholars that we are doing right now. And I've got a special guest here with me who is a good friend of mine, Dan Wallace. Dan, welcome to the broadcast of Theology Unplugged. Well, I thank you. I think, Michael. I mean, you, you kind of introduced me as a third stringer. Sam's not here. <laughs> Tim's not here. So I, I, you, got, you got me just because I said I have the free time. But thank you. Anyway, I appreciate being on your show. Hey, I was building up for you. <laughs> I was building up for you. So if you hear noise in the background, we're just in the middle of the Credo House. There's coffee being made and, and lattes being stirred and or packed, or, or however we do that. Carrie's back there right now making something. What are you making, Carrie? Hazelnut latte. Hazelnut latte. Mm. What do we call that? Hazelnut latte. Oh, come on. <laughs> we got to come up with a theological name for I'd, that one. I'd call that one the Arminius. <laughs> the Arminius. Um, hazelnut. Why? I'm not a fan of hazelnut at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we know where Dan Wallace stands on those issues. We did do our... Uh, um, uh, invitation to Calvinism a while back. Dan, you're certainly not a, a third stringer. It is really great to have you here at the Credo House. It's great to have you um, on Theology Unplugged. We just did a lunch with scholars. Tonight we're having our special night with scholars, or night with Dan Wallace, where we'll have this place packed out, and Dan's going to tell us about the text of the New Testament. Dan, um, you, have, you were my Greek professor, and um, you are heavily involved in lots of different things, got, got a lot of projects going on, but you, you've started a ministry in the last 10 years uh, called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, csntm.org. And that is a unique, unique ministry, unique uh, foundation. It's a 501c3, right? That is correct. 
501c3 to where you are uh, going on expeditions and doing projects for your, your area of specialty. And I want to talk to you about some of that and um, what you do. Mm-hmm. And, um, but briefly, before anything else, our audience uh, may have never been exposed to you. You are a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Have been there for how long? 26 years. 26 years. Just celebrated your 25th anniversary, but it's actually 26. Yeah, 25 years of faithful work. Yeah? (laughs) Out out of 26, it's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) And um, taught New Testament. Yes. The entire time? Mm Mm-hmm. You've never taught anything else? Uh, Well, I I like other things. I think the Old Testament's pretty good to read. Yeah. But the New Testament's what I teach. Yeah? You believe the Old Testament, too? I I believe it, yes. Church history, anything? You ever taught that? Uh, Obviously, we get into that as we're wrestling with the text and issues along those lines, sure. Okay. Tell us about why the New Testament. Uh, The reason I got into the New Testament and Greek studies as a teenager is because of a almost a conversion experience. It was just a radical commitment I made to Christ early on. And uh, I felt that if I'm going to dedicate my life to him, I needed to know the text well in the original. Mm. And so I started to study Greek in college and got four years of Greek in college. Then I double majored in it in uh, seminary, and then I majored in it in my doctoral program. And uh, I, I can't shake away from it. It's just amazing. New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, people speak Greek today. Same yes. Thing? Not exactly the same. It's, uh, it's simpler Greek today, and I won't get into the details of the morphological differences, but it is simpler. But I don't have an ear for language, and so every time I go to Greece, which is at least once a year, uh, it still sounds like Spanish to me. I mean, I can converse a little bit in modern Greek. I'm not very good at it, but uh, they say, oh, you read ancient Greek. That is so hard to learn. (laughs) So it's kind of a mutual feeling of respect, I guess. Now, I had to take Greek uh, for my THM, and I, I forget how many semesters I had to take, but quite a few. Then I majored in Greek, so I took quite a few more classes, took the advanced Greek grammar with you, And so every student that uh, you take through, one of the priorities is for them to get to know the original languages of the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament. Why? Well, uh, it's a Reformation principle. The the kind of the methodological guiding principle of the Reformation was ad fontes, back to the sources. And so the Reform scholars were saying, look, uh, we have the Bible in Latin, and that's good, but it's not what the Bible was originally written in. So let's get back to the sources in Greek and Hebrew for the Old Testament, and uh, they also had the principle of, let's make this clear for the masses. So they bridged two different worlds, the ancient world and the modern world. And so they began the whole idea of modern translations, which came right out of the Reformation, so that then you get these translations and people are getting into the text, but the Reformed uh, scholars uh, were getting into the original text. Luther said, every minister of the Word of God has got to know the original languages. Mm. And one of the things he said, which was remarkable, is there are so many tools available to us today that make it so easy to get into this that nobody has an excuse. They didn't have anything. Mm. I mean, they had one grammar and one dictionary, and it wasn't a very good dictionary, and you had to learn Latin to be able to read it. So I'm just amazed at uh, how much easier it is for us today and how many more excuses we have today for getting into the text. Some people are listening to this and saying, I'm never going to be able to get into the Greek New Testament. Is that okay? Can I still understand the Bible? Can I still live by the Reformation principle of getting back to the sources and understanding? That's one of the great things about the Bible, and it's a Reformation principle, again, is the perspicuity of Scripture. That means on the essentials of the faith, the Bible is very, very clear. Now, in, in one sense, reading the Bible in the original versus reading it uh, in translation is kind of like the difference between watching a football game in black and white on a 19-inch screen versus watching it in color, in HD color on a, on a big screen. 
And it's still the same game. The score ends up still being the same. You know who wins, you know who loses. But in color, it's, it's a much more sense of you are there. So it's a richer experience, but it's still the same experience. Let me, get, uh, let me make a little turn here since this is unplugged, and I, w- I want to ask you some personal questions myself that I have. Hey, we talked about you not asking me personal questions. I don't know what you're doing here, Michael. No, personal questions that I have, oh, okay. not personal questions about you. I'll leave that <laughs> like we promised. All right. Um, one of the things that I found since graduating seminary, I graduated in 2001, and I came out and I studied, uh, and I was—I uh, felt like uh, I did well in Greek. I, I passed the courses at least. I, you I, did I very did well in Greek. Um, but after after ha- having been out for a while now, I feel more insufficient than ever. I feel more scared of it than ever. Right when I got out, I felt like I should teach everybody and read from my Greek New Testament mm-hmm. all the time, and and now I feel like I, I've got—I I was dangerous and. It's almost like I got to spend a whole lot more time before I ever really dig into it and really can speak from that with any degree of authority. Do you find that often? Where in, in my own self? No, no. I, I mean, I, in, in I find people, it myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, people that begin to learn the Greek New Testament and and begin to teach from it that they are more dangerous than they are. They tend to be more dangerous after a little bit of Greek, especially after just a year of Greek because they think they know things that they don't really yet grasp, and their level of certainty and dogma therefore increases beyond their uh, knowledge. Mm. And, uh, and they speak in such a way that others say, oh, you have this knowledge of Greek that I don't have, therefore I have to trust your, your opinion. And, and part of it is really that within modern evangelicalism, the, the, the problem of how Greek and Hebrew are used by pastors all too often is it's almost like Gnosticism. Mm. That is, I know this stuff, it's a secret that you can't understand because I'm a lot smarter than you is, is almost the impression people get. Yeah, yeah. And you're just going to have to trust me. So it's kind of like we have Protestant popes in each pulpit. Yeah. Now, unless the man is very humble and he says, in his preaching, he says, look, there are various opinions on this. And this is the view that I take, here's the reasons why. I think in our proclamation of the, the gospel, we need to be very clear on the things that we do understand, uh, essentially, what we understand clearly, and we also have to be very clear about the things that we're not so sure about. And that needs to be part of our proclamation. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we do have, in essence, these uh, Protestant popes in each pulpit, and that's not, uh, not healthy at all. It is, and I hear this quite often whenever somebody will be preaching and they'll say, your translation says this, and this translation says this, but let me tell you what it actually says, you know, or, or let me go back to the original Greek, as if, you know, the people who are behind the writing of the, the NIV or the translation of the NIV or the ESV or the New American Standard, they didn't get what I got. I'm going to give you insider information there. This is what it really means. And, you know, one of the great things is that we've got people like you that, that we can refer our trust in. I mean, you, you're studying this day and night, and if there's 40 translators behind a, a, a translation, we can be assured that when we read from the English Bible, that we're getting the essence of what it is. Maybe black and white, not maybe not mm-hmm. quite as colorful and stuff, but uh, that, that's one of the things that we can be assured of because of uh, the work that uh, so many good scholars are doing in these areas. I, I think uh, English translations are getting better and better all the time in, in a lot of ways. In some ways, not. They're not getting better in terms of elegance. I think the King James just beat everything else ever in terms of just the, the literary uh, power it had. It's the only uh, English piece of literature that was ever done by a committee. Mm. And uh, it, it ha- in its own right, it's a beautiful document. Mm. But in terms of accuracy, 
uh, translations today are significantly better than the King James Bible. You're doing something very unique. Before I get to that, back to the Center for the Study of the New Testament Manuscripts, we've got uh, a few things. Um, you've, you've got a, your latest book. I know that you've got a lot of things that are uh, in the queue as far as writing, but your latest book is Revisiting the Corruption of the New Testament uh, Manuscript, Patristic, and Apocryphal Evidence. And this is a book about uh, your area of expertise. Tell us about this book. Revisiting the Corruption of the New Testament grew out of my debate with Bart Ehrman in April 2008 at New Orleans Baptist Seminary. It was the fourth annual Greer Heard Forum, and that's a dialogue between uh, a non-Christian scholar and a Christian scholar over an important issue. And that year it was over the text of the New Testament. Now, the lecture that I gave has been published in a book by Fortress Press called um, uh, the, the Reliability of the New Testament, a Dialogue Between Bart Ehrman and Dan Wallace was the title. And that's a bit of a truncated um, uh, lecture, but this has the, more, the, the fuller form of it, and that's the first chapter. Now, in preparation for that debate, I had uh, five interns that year, and they are all working on looking at investigating various areas of the text of the New Testament. And those guys did such an outstanding job. They read their papers at a regional evangelical theological society conference, and they were so good, I got permission for these master's students to read them at the national ETS. And they were again so good that I said, these things need to get published. And so this is the first book in a new series called The Text and Canon of the New Testament. I'm the editor of the series. It's by Kriegel Press, and the book just came out October 1st, 2011, the very day that Bart and I had our last debate, oh, wow. our second debate. Wow. Um, and how many are going to be in the series? Uh, as many as I can produce while I'm alive. Text and Canon. Text and Canon. The next one's going to be on Second Peter. Wow. And whether it's authentic and uh, by Peter, and if it's not, do we consider it scripture? We're going to wrestle with a lot of questions. There. Why do you have to throw that out there? Now I'm going to have to turn the discussion uh, in a different direction, and I want to go there. No, you don't. Just come and stay on focus here. Okay, I will. I will. <laughs> um, we don't have, whenever you're talking about the text of the New Testament, the reason why you have to debate people such as Bart Erdman, uh some people may not know. I mean, why do we have to debate about the text of the New Testament? I, isn't it just self-assured? We're, we're positive about what text uh, is the Greek New Testament uh, and the Hebrew Old Testament, for that matter? You know, this idea that we know exactly what it is is a myth that has come about only because of the printing press. Well, wait a minute. You're an evangelical. You can't say something like that. We can't know what Okay, the text I'm sorry. Is. Let's, let's erase that. From <laughs> <laughs> Expand. We, we don't know exactly what the text is for the original New Testament or Old Testament in several places. Uh, before you had the printing press, you had manuscripts done by hand. All the copies of the New Testament and Old Testament were done by hand before the printing press. Uh, Gutenberg invents it in 1454. The first time you have a Greek New Testament printed was 1516. And, uh, in fact, yesterday, March 1st, 1516, is when it was done. And so... Uh, what, is Did it, you do anything special on that day? Yeah, I, it, was, um, it was a fun day. You know, I kind of celebrated with Erasmus. We were in Basel together and just kind of yeah. partied. So... <laughs> um, Basically, what you've got here is when you have the printing press, then you have these manuscripts that are printed texts that look identical to each other. And that's where this, this whole idea of, well, the Bible hasn't changed forever. That's the only way you could ever have the King James Bible has perfectly been uh, preserving the exact meaning and wording of what the originals uh, uh, were all about. I've actually heard people say, uh, if the King James Bible was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. Mm. 
Well, uh, as soon as they say that, I say, how about them cowboys? You know, I mean, that's the level of intellectual discussion we're going to have from that point on. So right. you're in Oklahoma. You, you stepped on a few toes, but you're from Dallas, so you know that. Uh, well, I talked about the cowboys. I didn't talk about your professional. What, what is your professional football team here again? Just chill. <laughs> chill. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, we're, so these manuscripts differ from one another. In fact... Of the thousands of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, there's hundreds of thousands of differences among them. But the reality is that precisely because we have those differences, we can trace which manuscripts are related to which and which are the ancestors of which. And consequently, the more manuscripts that we have, even with these uh, mistakes in them or even intentional changes, that makes it that much easier for us to get back to the original wording. So we can't go to the Smithsonian and find the original John. It's, do we know where it's at? Or, or is it the Raiders of the Lost original John that were That's, on? That movie didn't quite make it, yeah. <laughs> um, the originals of the New Testament, as far as we all would recognize, all disappeared. Uh, turned to dust probably before the end of the second century, is my guess. Hmm. They were used so much, but also copied so much that uh, you know, within 100 years or so, they're, they're, they don't exist anymore. But you have multiple copies of those that then spread throughout the uh, Roman Empire. So we've got copies that we discover, and those copies, you say, run around 5,000. We've got about 5,000. Actually, 5,600 for the New Testament. 5,600. So in Greek alone. In Greek alone. Yeah. And, and that's your expertise, so we'll stick with that for now instead of going to the Old Testament. But um, whenever you're talking about the New Testament, now you have to construct from these 5,000, a standard text from which English people will translate into English. So the NIV comes from a standard text, and we call that uh, the Nestle Allen 27, is it still? Yeah, Nestle Allen 27. 28th is coming out soon, but not a couple years. Okay, 27 USB 4, both both standard text, pretty much the same text, different apparatus or footnotes. Right, Right, yeah. Um, Okay, so you... You're, you're very unique in that you're the only person I know that would be called a text critic. Uh, well, there are a few of us. Well, that I know of, I mean, that I know personally. Uh, very few text critics. In, you uh, should be grateful for that. Yeah, I, I am. And I, I often tell people that uh, you are one of the top ten text critics. No, I mean, grateful that you only know one is what I meant. <laughs> I, I mean, the, well, I, I do tell people that you are one of the top ten text critics in the world. I don't tell them that there's only about ten. So it doesn't mean that yeah, much. Yeah, there's actually eight, So, I, <laughs> but I am in the top ten. <laughs> um, whenever you are, um, you're the one who uh, not only does uh, text criticism, but you're also in the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts out on missions and expeditions, mm-hmm. uh, discovering new manuscripts, photographing manuscripts that we know, some of these 5,600. Your goal is to catalog and take high-resolution photos of all of them. Is that correct? That is correct. Every single one? If, as much as possible, as much as they allow us uh, to do so. There are some libraries that are starting to digitize their own collection, like the Vatican is starting to digitize theirs. Uh, the British Library is starting to digitize their collection, and they're posting those images online. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel and, and re-photograph those. But most places don't, and we have been in the business now for 10 years. We've taken more than 150,000 pictures of individual pages of Greek New Testament manuscripts, which makes us far and away uh, the most accomplished institute in the world for doing this very kind of thing. And so we've got the expertise. We've taken this through five different protocols on what we're trying to uh, accomplish on these uh, photographs. And uh, we've got some terrific expertise, and we're 
uh, getting doors open all over the world. We, we're getting permissions to go everywhere. We just don't have the funds for everywhere yet. And, yeah. and in this economy, it's kind of hard to get that. Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, csntm.org. That's they great. Can find it. Uh, and your goal is not just to have photos lining your house. You know, you're not taking pictures of these to put them in uh, on Flickr for your own personal no. use, right? It's for to preserve, right? Right. It's to digitally preserve these images. We put them on our website so that anybody can access uh, these images for free. Hmm. Uh, we don't uh, charge anything because it's a nonprofit institute. And scholars around the world are starting to utilize this. In fact, the folks that are producing the Nestle All on 28th edition are starting to utilize our images to help them with uh, what these manuscripts have to say. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, maybe we'll get into a little bit of the individual uh, manuscripts and some of the things that you discover while you're out there. Um, but we want to talk about this, this leak that you let out. Uh, during a debate with Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, uh, without getting in too much into the debate, you, I do have right in front of me a DVD set of this debate. This is your first debate, Saturday, October 1st, 2011, between Daniel Wallace and Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a uh, professor, uh, a scholar, uh, very accomplished in the same area that you're accomplished in, and doesn't take the same positions that you take with regards to the reliability of the New Testament is out there publishing works and popular works and influencing quite a few people saying basically the New Testament cannot be relied upon. You debate him in an extraordinary way on this DVD set. Can, I, I know we have it here at the Credo House, this DVD set for everybody that's here tonight and for this day, but can they get this from your uh, website? Yes, it's uh, the debate DVD is done by a professional film crew, four different cameras running, they edited it. It's available at uh, csntm.org. You go to the very front page, the home page, and you can click on to a link to buy the. Do you uh, have to know the, Greek to watch this? Uh, only four or five years of Greek. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. We, this was actually the largest debate in history over the text of uh, the Bible, over 1,400 people in attendance. Wow. Amazing uh, how many people came out and were interested, not just Christians, but several atheists, uh, several Muslims and uh, skeptics and people that were just seekers trying to figure this out. You've debated them three times now, and on your latest debate, you let out a leak. Uh, tell us about that leak, because it's just, it's, it's exploded. This was on February 1st, uh, 2012. I debated him at his school, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And about a, a thousand people, maybe a little bit more than a thousand people were in attendance. And one of the things that Bart had been mentioning in our two previous debates is that we don't have uh, copies of copies of copies. We're waiting until much, much later before we have any copies of any part of the New Testament. And um, uh, he, he, in our second debate, which was at SMU, he said, we don't have any first century copies of uh, Mark. We don't even have any second century copies of Mark. The earliest copy we have is third century, and it's, it's quite incomplete. And so at the time that he said that, that was true, that that was our earliest copy. But what I pointed out in this debate uh, was that we now have six more manuscripts that are from the second century than we knew of before. Four of them are almost surely from the second century, two are possibly, they're kind of on the, the cusp between second and third. And then there was a seventh manuscript that is probably not from the second century, but is most likely from the first. And one of the world's leading paleographers has dated it to the first century. He's quite sure that it's from that time. Uh, and I'm not allowed to tell all the details, but I can say this, that all of these uh, manuscripts are going to get published in a book that is coming out at about this time next year. And it will be published by E.J. Brill, the great uh, uh, Dutch uh, scholarly publication. Okay. 
Now, for those of people who don't know, why why is this a big deal? I mean, to find a first century manuscript, uh, don't didn't we have other ones? What what is the status of the manuscript besides that? And what does that do from the standpoint of of the authenticity of our gospel message that we spread? What on the one level, what it does is the earliest manuscript we knew of of the New Testament uh, prior to this discovery was uh, P fifty two, and that was discovered in nineteen thirty four. Uh, I, I won't get into the details of it, but it's from the first half of the second century, about 100 to 150. And uh, at the time of its discovery, the uh, papyrologist who looked at it said, we think it's closer to 100 than 150. You can't really date these manuscripts uh, more precisely than 50 years. And uh, so then there was a fourth one who looked at it and said, I disagree with you all. I think it was written in the 90s. Uh, and uh, a decent scholar, it's fascinating uh, that it, we may have a copy that's a fragment from John's Gospel written in the 90s when most people think that's when John was written. And so uh, that was an extraordinary discovery. It, it has been, since 1934, the oldest fragment of the New Testament known to exist, first half of the second century. We have uh, at least four manuscripts from the second century and as many as 12 from the second century, but nothing was quite as old as P52. Now, this fragment of Mark, uh, if it's from the first century, is going to predate that, obviously, by at least a few years and as many as half a century. Uh, Mark's was the earliest gospel, but it was not the most copied gospel very early on because 90% of Mark's gospel is found in Matthew. Matthew's gospel was the one that was copied the most. And so people would look at Mark and they'd look at Matthew and say, well, I see almost all of Mark in Matthew. Let me just copy Matthew. I don't need to do both. Now, is it the most out of the synoptics or is John? Even uh, including John, Matthew is copied more. I've been spreading misinformation here. Well, but that's part of your charm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, 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 I apologize because I've said I don't know how many times that John was the most copied, but Matthew was. And now we have... John is right up there, though. So okay. you, you, were, you were close. Okay. Um, Mark, if we say this comes out, okay, and, and you seem pretty assured that this is uh, a good find because you're, you are not, one of the things that I know about you, Dan, is you're so careful, and I appreciate that, and I've learned, just to let you know, I've learned quite a bit from that, because I remember one time I asked you a question that it had something to do with the Old Testament or something, and it was something that you said to me, you said, Michael, that is not my area, so I'm not going to speak to that with any authority, but here's my opinion. And then you waxed eloquent on something that was incredible, you know, that was that you did know 100% more than I knew, but you were so careful because you, you I, uh, because I think you're just, you fear the truth in the sense that this is God and we don't want to misrepresent him. Mm-hmm. And so you, I know you to be a person that don't, you don't speak unless, you know, you have uh, some degree of assurance and you don't speak with any authority unless you have a lot of assurance. But you seem to be pretty assured that this is going to be something that is not like the ossuary or not like that, that fragment of Matthew or Mark that was supposedly found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is different. This is different. Uh, and my assurance is based on uh, the fact that I know the paleographer who has dated this and a very accomplished paleographer. The news is going to come out. At the same time, I think it is a good position for any biblical scholar to look at this and say, I'm skeptical until I see the evidence. That's, that's fair, that's right, and that's the attitude they should take. And uh, when they see the evidence, and then when they get this vetted by some other paleographers, then I think the dialogue is going to begin, and then they're going to see the significance. It could be as significant as X over here, or maybe not quite so, but still, 
even if this were a second century manuscript, it's, it's huge news. But this paleographer is convinced that it's a first century. Now, so it needs to be vetted. Scholars need to look at this. And uh, I think that's, that's important for all of us to, to wrestle with that, that you're hearing just my opinion so far. You're hearing the fact that I'm kind of the messenger for this paleographer whose name I cannot yet reveal. Uh, but the news will come out. And so it's not like I have uh, the Ark of the Covenant hidden in a church in Ethiopia and uh, nobody can ever look at the thing, but you just have to take my word. I've really got the darn thing. It's not like this fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls in the uh, Qumran Cave 7. This was something that there have been some bloggers who have said, well, Wallace is probably talking about 7Q5, that fragment that a couple of scholars thought was from Mark's Gospel. If they'd ever read anything I'd written, they realized, no, I'm not talking about that. I've written two articles against that identification. Or some have said, well, maybe he's talking about P64 and 67, which are known as the Maudlin Papyrus. And if they ever even looked at the Maudlin Papyrus, they'd say, that's not even from Mark's Gospel. And somebody else dated it. It's from Matthew, but somebody else dated it first century. I disagree with that dating. And so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of skepticism that is ignorant skepticism that's coming out, and that's not helpful. There needs to be honest dialogue about what's going on in this, this material. Okay, so we bridge this gap a little bit further than we did before, especially with the gospel story. What does that do for you? Why would you be so excited about this? What, what, is, the, what is the bridge that we're trying to bridge, and what, how does this impact biblical scholarship? I think one of the things that's important to wrestle with, in, in my debates with Bart Ehrman, he has pointed out that the earlier we go in terms of the manuscripts, the more corrupt those, uh, those manuscripts are, the, the, the sloppier the scribes are, the worse those scribes are. Well, that is a huge overstatement. But at the same time, there are some manuscripts that are early that seem to be done fairly sloppily. However, what he doesn't point out is that the kinds of mistakes that they make are mistakes that are um, uh, unintentional errors. It would be like saying, uh, we the people of the United States, in order to uh, uh, make a more perfect onion instead of a more perfect union. You know, it's that kind of a stupid mistake. But what Bart is trying to argue is that the earlier we go with the manuscripts, the more corrupt they are. Therefore, if we find even earlier manuscripts, then we have no idea what the original said. But that really is not true. The earlier we go, we find that the kinds of mistakes that many of these, but not all of these manuscripts by a long shot make, are the kinds of mistakes that are easily detectable and fixable. Onion Union. Onion Union, exactly. And so one, one of the things that's significant about these new seven uh, discoveries of manuscripts uh, is that uh, these manuscripts are still confirming the basic understanding we have of the text of the New Testament. There's another thing that I think is important to point out, and that is in the last 135 years, there has not been a single New Testament manuscript discovery that has a reading that nobody had seen before that now scholars are saying, this is authentic, and it's only found in this manuscript. Not a single one in the last 135 years. Mm -hmm. Now, in those last 135 years are when all of the New Testament papyri have been found. And consequently, what this means is we already had the text of the New Testament in the manuscript somewhere known 135 years ago. What the papyri do is they kind of shift the weight from 
well, this is the reading we thought it was, reading A instead of reading B, but we had manuscript testimony for both, and now we think it's reading B because there's more early papyri that go in that direction. I know that you're not an apologist in the sense of theological uh, person that uh, is professionally out there defending the faith in that sense. You're a scholar, a biblical scholar, and in that sense you are just examining the data and then you're giving material to kind of apologists sometimes, for or against sometimes, it, it just depends. But this is, uh, this is a big deal because from an apologist, we, we're all apologists for the faith. We're all defenders of the faith. And from the sense of defending the faith, especially in the light of modern scholarship and people who are skeptical, critical, Bart Ehrman's out there and those people that are influencing, what we're saying is that we have a manuscript that can be dated within a lifetime of at least those that were, knew the apostles or, or in that right. generation. And that makes it so much harder for these ideas of legend yeah, the whole story is a legend. The Jesus story is a legend. And even if the, and I don't know how big the manuscript is, I imagine that it's a fragment or something. It I, is I, a fragment, okay. yes. Okay. Uh, but whenever you see a fragment, you can compare it to the text type or the family of manuscripts that we mm -hmm. do have fuller versions of. And to see if it parallels that, then you can connect the text types and then really add authenticity to the ones that we already have that are established. And so, in other words, we're not out there saying, I can't wait, this is going to be some, something new Jesus said or something new that we didn't know before, but it's I can't wait because it's going to continue to establish what we have known for 2,000 years and that people are challenging in new and often very creative and popular ways. And we've just got to keep on our A game, and, and this is something that helps with, with that, right? It does, and I think one of the things that's remarkable about how it helps in terms of the whole idea of uh, the stories about Jesus being a legend is that, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, that's not how legends work. They don't develop within decades. It takes centuries for legends to develop. And he went through all sorts of different ancient texts where you've got these legends, and he said the New Testament doesn't fit that pattern at all in terms of the copies of the manuscripts or in terms of the stories that we have in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's not legendary. It doesn't fit that pattern at all. Well, that's exciting. We'll wait for that to come out. I certainly don't want to detract all of this. I know that you were given permission to leak this out, so it's not something that I'm twisting your arm about. I was both permitted and, and encouraged to leak it. Good, yes. good. And we're, we're very excited about that. And, and tonight I will tie you up and um, not let you leave Sooner Territory until you give up more information, but that's just between <laughs> me and you later on. Um, Corruption of the New Testament, I do want to encourage people to get that and the DVD of the debate. Now, another thing that I do want to encourage people as well, and, I, and there's some people here that may have some questions. Uh, we'll just open that up here at the Credo House just for a moment. But um, uh, you, you also do seminars all the time for lay people. We've had you do what's called the Snoopy Project. Is that what it was called? Am I yes, Snoopy, right? Snoopy Project. Project. That was so much fun. That was back 10 years ago we did the Snoopy it Project. It was, yeah. Uh, at Stonebrow Community Church, but you travel from church to church and, and you set up seminars all the time. And you're not just speaking on a scholarly level to where you're just uh, in your ivory tower. You are trying to educate uh, lay people. I don't this. have an ivory tower, actually. No, Mine's no. just a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I encourage you guys that, uh, that if you can, schedule Dan Wallace. Uh, I know he's got a busy schedule, but uh, I know he loves to come to churches and do things like he's doing here at the Credo House and tonight and educating people on this stuff. And so you've got all kinds of material that you bring to that. So, so folks, this is what it's all about. This is why we exist as a ministry, to, to try to uh, take this stuff and say it's not just for people out there that are in the seminaries, but this is for everybody because you know what? This is the Bible that we all proclaim, and this is the gospel 
we all love. And it's the accuracy that we all want to have confidence in, and we can have that confidence and, and, and grow. And sometimes it's difficult, but uh, other times it's easy, and I'm glad that Dan makes it accessible and easy. Uh, here at the Credo House, you guys have any, any questions about anything? And we've kind of thinned out a little bit here. Well, you ran everybody off. I did, yeah. Yeah, all right. Um, it's um, uh, going to be uh, uh, broadcast. Uh, I'm not sure when this one will be broadcast, but it should be this week, this Friday. Oh, good. So it'll be the same week that everybody's listening to it. Uh, since we have thinned out here, I'm just going to bring the broadcast to a close. But I do want to tell you, appreciate what you're doing. Uh, and I appreciate Oh, it's uh, a joy to, to be here and to uh, talk to you, Michael. I'm looking forward to tonight, too. Appreciate your pastoral attitude about everything as well. Uh, folks, we will uh, pick this back up next time. Again, we're going to be beginning, be beginning difficult passages of the Scripture and probably start with blasphemy in the Holy Spirit, so we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.